Welcome to Salem Alliance Church. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org. This week's message is by Jennifer Roth. I want to start by answering the semi-obvious question, uh, why am I limping around the stage in a boot? Well, uh, I have to tell you a little story for that. I sprained my ankle for the first time when I was a freshman in high school. And I'd love to tell you that I was playing basketball or softball or something exciting, but um, I was babysitting. And uh, I was at the top of the stairs and I said to the 11-year-old boy that I was babysitting, I'll race you down the stairs. And when we got to about three steps from the bottom, he was winning, and that was unacceptable. And so I jumped, and unbeknownst to me, the floor at the bottom was uneven, and I sprained my ankle quite forcefully, and I didn't know what I had done. I'd never heard of a sprain or seen a sprain, and so it took a while before I understood what had happened. And what happened at that point was, as many of you know, when a joint like that has been compromised, it is more likely to be compromised in the future. And so a couple more violent sprains, one bouncing into the high jump pit and one playing a pickup game of basketball in low top shoes left me with an ankle that was just pretty unstable. And so over the last however many years, I've lost count of the number of times it's rolled, but what it does is it just kind of goes out unprovoked. And so on December 10th, I saw a surgeon who repaired the ligament, strengthened it up, and is hopefully giving me more stability. So I'm in a boot, and some of you are like, oh, poor thing, she's in a boot. And I'm like, I am walking on my own two feet. You don't see crutches or my little knee scooter that some of you see me on the last couple months. So I am thrilled to just be standing on my two feet. And one of the things that has struck me about that is, isn't that kind of like our spiritual life? There's something that happens and it, it creates this place of weakness in our life. Maybe it's a sin that we just struggle to turn away from. Maybe it's an addiction that we struggle to get free from. Maybe it's a, a lack of trust in, in God's love, this inability to receive his love, this, this Achilles tendon, if you will, this, this ligament that is just weak and causes some instability. And we need the restoration of someone, of God, to heal that, to fix that, to strengthen that. And yet, like me with my surgeon, I had to give him permission to do that work. And that work was painful, and that work led to some recovery that has been a long road for me. And for you and I, we've been in this series about loving God and loving people, and yet we know that there are some people that are hard to love. And and some of us need to come to a place where we allow God to do the even sometimes painful work in us so that we can receive what he wants to give us so that we can love the way that he calls us to love. As we've been going through the series, Steve Fowler um, launched us off a few weeks ago just reminding us that the Bible says over and over and over again that love is the most important thing. He reminded us that second week that love is the bullseye, and and he took us through that um, passage in 1 Corinthians 13 where it just lists out what love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. And he challenged us to put our name in that passage and to say Jennifer is patient and Jennifer is kind and to look at that and see Does this measure up? He also reminded us that we have to know who we are in God. We have to be secure of our identity in him, that we are valuable and acceptable and forgivable and capable in order to be able to extend those same things to others. And then last week, Brian Candelo was talking through the Pharisee and the Sadducee and this, this teaching that some people, by the way they're living their life, need to be reminded to be patient and kind, and, and, and you need to be living in love. 
And yet others need to be reminded that there is a law and we need to be obeying that law. And as Christ followers, we are called to live in love and in obedience, in grace and truth together, and that both are needed and necessary to follow Christ. And this morning, we're going to spend some time in 1 John that um, Jeff read through and look at what is this love, this such love that has no fear. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. And I don't know about you, but I still have fear. I live with anxiety. I live with worry. I live with fear in my life. And so I read something like this and I go, okay, I'm not experiencing what God is saying is possible for one of his children. So what is it that I have not yet grasped, or that I have not seen, that I have not lived, received into my heart for transformation, that I might live in this place of not being afraid? And so I look at this such love and I go, okay, what is that kind of love? What is the definition of this love? And we look back in this 1 John chapter 4 and starting in verse about 17, it says, we live in God, our love grows more perfect. As we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So part of this such love is living in God, remaining in God, abiding in God. As we live in God, our love grows more perfect, so we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. So such love is a love that lives in God and that lives like Jesus. So the question that we're going to look at today is how do we live in God and live like Jesus? And John, as he's writing this book, is answering a question because there have been some false teachers. And he's responding to this false teaching. They had been teaching that Jesus had not actually come and lived in the flesh. And so John is writing to people who have been his disciples, and he's explaining to them that there are people who can call themselves Christ followers who are not actually teaching the truth. There are people who can say they know God who don't actually know God. And how do we know who is from God and who is not from God? How can we tell? And the book of 1 John lays out evidence for what it looks like when you are a Christ follower. And for some of us, we can go, wait, that doesn't really compute with other scriptures that say, don't judge other people unless you be judged. We're not supposed to judge other people's faith, right? And I would just say that there's a difference between recognizing that there is a way that someone who is following Christ will live and then inserting myself into the judgment of whether or not that person is really a follower of Christ. I can say, I don't think I need to listen to your teaching without saying, I know that you're going to hell. Do you hear the difference? And so John is giving us this evidence of what it looks like to be a Christ follower. And as this man who always refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Can you imagine having that kind of self-identity that you understood that your identity was rooted so much that he never responded, never talked about himself as John. He talked about himself as the disciple Jesus loved. Can you imagine if I lived knowing that I'm Jennifer that Jesus loved? Or if you lived as the Mike or the Carol or the Laurel or the Jeff or the Judy or the Scott that Jesus loved? Like that was the foundational awareness of who I am. And this is who's writing us this book, this disciple of Jesus who walked with him while he was on the earth and who was one of the leaders of the early church after Jesus left and at the end of his life had this rock solid foundation knowledge that the most important thing about him was that he was loved by Jesus Christ. 
And as he tells us what the evidence is of being a Christ follower, what the evidence is of loving the way that God calls us to love, he gives us some pretty hard words. Actually, in this book, he calls a lot of people's liars. And I was told not to call names when I was growing up. But he says, over and over again, as he weaves these themes together, he was at the end of his life, and it's kind of like somebody sat down with their great-grandpa and said, tell me what's important. And as he starts to talk, he repeats himself a lot. But as he repeats himself, he keeps coming back to some of these central themes. One of those is living in the light. He says, we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. He says again, if someone claims I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandment, that person is a liar. Don't love this world, for when you love the things of this world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. If you claim to be living in the light, but you hate a Christian brother or sister, that's still living in darkness. He comes back around to these themes of sin and light and dark and love and hate. And he begins to talk about the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit has been given to us. And one of the beautiful things about this is as he weaves together all these don'ts, don't continue sinning, don't continue living in the darkness, don't hate your brother. He also weaves together the blessings. And on every one of these, if you look through these passages, when he says, if you're living in the darkness, you're a liar, he says, but if you live in the light, God is in you and we have fellowship and we have eternal life. And in each one of them, he gives the redemption. Don't sin, but if you confess your sin, he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Don't hate, but if you truly love, others will see that God is living in you. And here's what I want to say about that. Loving people is hard work. And as Christ followers, a lot is asked of us. We are asked to stop sinning. We are asked to not hate. We are asked all these things. And yet everything has been given to us. Everything has been given to us. And so as we look at this, this evidence of what a Christ follower looks like, it can't be boiled down to a to-do list. And yet there are things that we will do if we are true Christ followers. Not for condemnation or judgment's sake, but for the sake of recognizing that I truly do have the spirit of the living God living in me, and I am on a path towards God and his ways and not stuck in darkness and sin, immorality, superstition, these places of darkness. And because our series is on love, I want to just focus in on one of these a little bit more. Have any of you in the last couple weeks thought in your head or said of someone, I hate that person? I think we've come to use that word more lightly than it was meant to be used. And I would suggest that we don't treat it that lightly, that we use the word hate carefully because this says anyone who hates another brother or sister is still living and walking in darkness. Such a person does not know the way to go having been blinded by darkness. So when we are living in such a way that we are saying, I hate someone, we are demonstrating that we are still living in darkness and we don't know the truth and the light that God has shed on this earth. And let me say this, there are relationships that are hard. There are places where there is conflict and there are times when we need to talk about what that looks like. And I am all for us being honest with what we feel, what the reality of the relationship is, what has happened and where we need to go. But can I suggest that we use words such as, I am very angry with that person. That person has hurt me. I am offended by this injustice. 
I don't find that to be a safe relationship. I need to put up some boundaries there so that I can walk this in a place where my soul is cared for and safe. But steer clear of this overarching thing of I hate them. And especially when it comes to the body of Christ and other brothers and sisters in Christ. And throughout all of this, as John is teaching, one of the things that he weaves through and repeats several times is, dear children, this is not a new teaching. This is what's been taught from the beginning. This is what has been known from the beginning. And so I thought, well, let's go back to the beginning and see what God set in place at the very beginning. What was his picture of a loving relationship with him and others as he set it up before any sin entered the world? And so we find in Genesis 1 that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it goes on to tell us in that chapter about how the earth came to be in the sun and the moon and the seas and the land and the animals. And when we get to 1 verse 27, we find God creating humans. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. He created us in his own image and his image is sinless. God does not sin. And so when we were initially created in God's image, we did not have sin. We were created in righteousness. This is the first piece of how God created it in the beginning and what he intended for you and I. He intended for us to live in righteousness. We were created in his image. We were created in righteousness. We go on to find that in the garden, God was walking with Adam and Eve. He would come in the evening and he would walk with them. He sat with Adam as Adam named the animals. There was this relationship. There was this connection. There was this intimate connection. In the beginning, we had an intimate relationship with God. And this intimate relationship was one both of, of familyhood with him as his children and one of direction from him. I imagine in the garden, God and Adam were talking about what needed to happen the next day and how that was going to work. And there's this, there's this day-to-day walk in the garden intimacy with God. And in the beginning, there was also healthy relationship with each other. We find in Genesis 2, verse 23, when Adam sees Eve for the first time, he says, at last, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united as one. In the beginning, in the perfection of what he wanted for us in his love was a relationship, a community where we could do life with people who understood us and who we understood and who we had healthy relationships with. This was the gift of God in the beginning. And flipping back to chapter 1, verse 28, we find that right after he created them, God gave them a purpose and authority. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. He gave them a meaningful purpose for what they were to be doing together in this partnership that they had, and he gave them his authority to do it. This is an amazing picture of what God intended for us, and yet you and I know that that is not how it stayed. We know that God said to Adam, the Lord placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it, but the Lord God warned him, you may eat freely of the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of its fruit, you are sure to die. And we find that the serpent came to Eve. And in this conversation that's recorded in chapter three of Genesis, the serpent questions God's words. 
He questions God's nature and character. He questions God's motives. And in one of the most tragic sentences of scripture, it says the woman was convinced. She was convinced that God was not trustworthy. She was convinced that he did not have her best in mind. She was convinced that his motives were selfish, that he didn't want her to know the things that he knew. And she and Adam ate the apple. Have you ever wondered why God put a bad choice in the garden? I have. God, why even start with a bad choice there? Why not just let us live in perfection to start with? And it's not the sermon I'm preaching, and it's, it's not a question I have a solid answer to, but I will say this. One of the things I wonder is if God wasn't really looking to have a creation that he could perfectly control like chess pieces, but if he wanted a creation that he could have relationship with, and the only way for that to be real and authentic relationship is for that to be a chosen relationship, and the only way for us to choose to love God and to enter in that relationship with him is if we have the choice to not choose to enter into that relationship with him. And so Adam and Eve chose not to enter into that trusting relationship with God, and they made that bad choice, and so have I, and so have you. And what we find is that what God set up was broken. We call it the fall when Adam and Eve ate the apple. And at the fall, righteousness was lost. We were no longer sinless. And at the fall, our intimate relationship with God was broken because mankind was cast out of the garden. And you know, we weren't just cast out of the garden as punishment for punishment's sake. We were cast out of the garden out of mercy because it says in Genesis that there was another tree. It was the tree of life. And God said, we can't let men stay in the garden because if they eat of the tree of life, they will live forever. And now that they have sinned, we can't let them live forever. And that was his mercy. Can you imagine if God had allowed us to live forever in our sinful state before our restoration had been won. Can you imagine? And so he mercy, he cast us out of the garden and yet it broke our intimacy with him. And our healthy relationship with other was broken. If you read through the list in the curses after the fall, you find a lot of explanation for the mess that we find ourselves in in this world. It talks about the, the strife between men and women that's going to come, the strife in the household and in family relationships, the toil for the work that that purpose that man was created for is going to be thwarted, that all of creation has fallen and now there's going to be weeds and the soil is going to be hard to work. In Romans, it tells us that all of creation longs for the perfect redemption of creation because even our earth is not as it was meant to be before the fall. And we find that our purpose and our authority was lost. See, authority is an interesting thing because God gave it to us and we gave it away. And then Jesus earned it back. And we'll get to what he did with it later. <laughs> but at the moment of the fall, as we look at this, all is lost. All is lost. And the first human reactions that we see in Genesis 3 is that suddenly they felt shame at their nakedness. And when God came to walk with them in the garden, they were afraid because they knew they were naked. Shame and fear. They were ashamed. Now they knew good and evil. Now they saw and they understood who they were and who God is and, and shame filled them. And they were afraid. They were afraid of their nakedness. They were afraid of vulnerability. They were afraid of what they had done. They were afraid of God. This God who had created them and, and loved them so much and invited them into relationship with himself and placed them in a place where they could have chosen to eat from the tree of life. And they were afraid of him. And yet 1 John tells us that there is no fear in love because perfect love expels all fear. So how did we get from the all is lost in Genesis to the 
Perfect love casts out all fear and there is no fear of punishment in 1 John. And this is the good news. Because what we find in 1 John is that righteousness is restored. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. That is the work of Jesus on the cross for us. We don't have to live in our unrighteous, broken state. We can be restored to all righteousness, not because of our perfection. Let me tell you, I'm a recovering perfectionist, and I still haven't gotten this right. This isn't about us. This is about what God is doing for us. We have the restoration of our intimate relationship with God. 1 John 3, 1 says, See how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children, and that is what we are. We are his children. And he gives us the Holy Spirit. The Spirit teaches us everything we need to know, and what he teaches is true. So not only did he restore us as children, but he restored us to that daily intimacy with the Holy Spirit who's given to remind us of the things that Jesus taught and that Jesus lived. He restores our healthy relationship with others. We love because he first loved us. And when we enter into that love that he has for us and we receive what he's giving us, we are able to love others. And he restores our families and our communities and our marriages and our parenting. And he restores our relationships. And we have the restoration of our purpose and our authority. It says, the son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. And you, my dear children, have won the victory because the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. He has restored all that was lost. The question is, are you and I entering into that restoration? So here's our part. Our part is that we are called to confess our sins. He will restore us to all righteousness when we take responsibility for the things that we've done that we knew were not according to God's will. He calls us to trust in his love, to trust who he is and to trust that he has our good in mind. He invites us to the same thing he invited Adam and Eve to, to the same thing the serpent cast out on, that he is good and trustworthy and that his motives are good and that he wants the best for us. We trust that love and in that we live in God. And then how do we live like Jesus? Well, we listen to the Holy Spirit. We develop a heart and a head, ears to hear and eyes to see what it is and how it is that God is leading us so that on a daily basis we can be living like Jesus. And yet even with all of that, there's a piece of that that isn't necessarily up to our understanding. In Ephesians, Paul said he prayed for us that we would experience the love that was beyond understanding. And this says that if we don't know this love, then, then we haven't experienced it perfectly. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to move in a time where I'm inviting you to move from your head to your heart. And I've heard it said that that's the longest foot in the world. I've also heard it said that Satan has a stranglehold on our necks and he's trying real hard to keep what we know in our heads to get to our hearts. And so Jeff's going to come back and lead us in a time of confession. And then Jeff Brown and the worship team are going to lead us through an extended period of communion. And I invite you to enter in and to engage with God on a level that might give him the permission to touch your heart with an experience of his love. I love that word, restoration. And we have an opportunity to all gather in and focus in on restoration, our own personal re-restoration today. As we come to a time of confession, one writer has said that confession is the pathway to joy. The pathway to joy? I don't want to find out where things are wrong. I want to run from that. But today, as the worship team that is gathered, I invite you to run to confession.
When we find out who we really are before God and set it before him, he can meet us where we really are because he can't meet us where we're not. And so think about the time when you came to faith, when you first believed, the joy that came from the release of confessing your sin, of receiving the gift of salvation, and the freedom that you experienced. This is to be the believer's continual life and experience. And if you have yet to believe, maybe this is the day for you to begin asking God to forgive you, to grant you new life, and uh, to help you seek his way. Listen to these words from 1 John. If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So while I pray and give instruction, Holy Spirit, come and show us if there are places where we have offended you or where our relationship is broken. And if you hear a general sense of Oh, I'm not measuring up. Just this general cloud of unworthiness. That's not the Lord. He'll pinpoint something specific that you can do something about. Something specific that you can confess. So let's come to him in this time of confession. Father, I silence the voice of the enemy who is the accuser. These are God's children and this is God's place covered by the blood of Christ. And I silence the voice of the flesh, that is our own voice, that would confuse or excuse us as we come to this place before you. And we want to be right with you and not wrong. And we want to be straight with you. And so we invite you, Holy Spirit, to expose and remind us of places in our life where we've gone off the path and missed the mark. Help us to see ourselves and to be able to set it before you and admit it. We listen and wait upon you. Are there things that you've said or done in the last week or two that sort of arise in your mind that need to be confessed or made right. Father, we're sorry for those places where we've looked for the approval of others and done things to look good in their eyes instead of looking for your approval. We're sorry for the places where we've run from our relationship with you because we're afraid that we won't measure up or that we'll fail or we can't make it happen. And so we just have been afraid to try. And we turn because we want to walk close to you. And we want to press in. And we want to give it another chance. We confess our sexual sin because it focuses on our desires on something other than your life and love. And we ask for your purity to come and restore us and lead us in the straight path. 
and the one that enhances our relationship with you and those around us. We confess, confess our control and our reliance on ourselves because too often, as was mentioned, we're looking at our bank account or our money and we walk in fear when we don't have it and we want to come and place ourselves in the position of trust before you. We confess where we've hated our brother and sister and have broken relationship with them instead of working toward restoration. Forgive us for that. And we commit to go to make things right and to do what we can to create peace. Where we've doubted your love or our gifting in our life, we release that because we want to receive your grace. And so listen to these words from John, which says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is a sacrifice that atones for our sins. And based on that, Father, I release grace and peace over this congregation, the people that are here with us and who are watching by live stream. We believe in your gifting and your calling on our life. And because of the grace and blood of Jesus Christ and the confession that has been made, we request a fresh outpouring of your Holy Spirit that will empower us and enable us to bring peace to our city and grace to our world. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we look and request and ask for your healing and hope as we worship in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us on the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. We are a community of believers located in downtown Salem, Oregon, and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. If you have a request that we could pray for, please email us at prayers at salemalliance.org. If you'd like more information about this podcast or other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org.